0: The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts,
1: Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, have I told you I have taken up IF? IF? Like, IF. In vitro fertilization? (laughs) Wham! Yeah, it's a hobby. I'm doing it in the back room. No. (laughs) Intermittent fasting. All the cool kids are doing it, right? You know? Oh, so so, how's that going? Intermittent fasting. Hmm.
0: I've been doing it for about six weeks. I can't believe I haven't told you. I Didn't want to talk about it, and I eased into it. And it's that sixteen-hour you don't eat, and then you eat, have all your food in one eight-hour window. So you eat nonstop, like for eight, for eight hours? No, <laughs> no, actually, because you you know it's fine actually. Uh, so I do that between two and ten p.m., uh, and I'm doing it to really you lose weight if you have to but it regulates your blood sugar which is why I'm doing it and it reminds me of something that I heard Cat Alvarado say
1: Cat Alvarado well she's our guest this week but what did she
0: say that's
1: why I bring this up because she
0: she said that our emotions are often just digestive issues and i thought this is so true you know like, like when you're we all know about being hangry uh, or having low blood sugar or and sometimes you feel that you're just you're filled with rage and it's actually gas so I think
1: there's a lot of truth to that. She's Cat Alvarado. She, she's not a dietitian. She's a comedian and, and she's so much more. Um, so she does have a few views about, well, maybe not about being hangry, but she's an American Nicaraguan. Uh, she considers herself a Latina misfit. Whatever that is, we can talk about it. She has a huge background in theater. She became a financial analyst. Yeah, as all of us have, and then we got bored. Uh, But there are good ones. Anyway, she gave all that up and fell in love with stand-up comedy.
0: Kat was also married, on a personal note, briefly. I don't think she still is, at the age of 19. And she turned that, she's shaking her head, uh, no, no longer. But she turned that into an award-winning one-woman show called Best Wife Ever. Have a listen. I
2: actually got married when I was 19. Anyone else here? Bad judgment? (laughs) Just me, that's fine. (laughs) Now, if you know any teenagers who want to get married, pull them aside, look them in the eye, and be like, You're not in love. That is a sugar high. That's what's happening. Took me to my mid-20s to figure out that half of my emotions are just digestive issues. Like the other day, I was on a date. My palms were sweaty, and my stomach was in a knot, and I was like, Oh my gosh, this could be it. This could be the one. And then I took a shit.
1: Ah! Wow. Alvarado's debut album. It's called Off White. Thank goodness it's not called uh, Beige. I hate Beige, but anyway, Cat. She's also <laughs> so off Beige. Somehow that doesn't work. Off Whites. Yes. So she's an activist, and it's because she has strong roots in Nicaragua. Uh, and recently, well, not that recently, but President Daniel Ortega he violently cracked down on peaceful protesters. Uh, he closed the Red Cross, other civic groups that threaten his regime. There was there was a massive revolution, and she became very active on that front
0: well she started a
1: podcast called
0: villains of history where she invites other comedians on to discuss bad guys of history to entertain and educate people on evildoers while making us laugh and so so much to talk about so it's perfect for us so much to talk about are you are you ready to talk to cat i'm just gonna sit here with my big cup of steam you know what? two o'clock cannot come soon enough cat <laughs> alvarado hello and welcome Hi. to women of repute
2: hello happy to be here you guys are hilarious. Oh my goodness. Such witty banter.
0: (laughs) Well, yes, we, we, we work on that.
1: (laughs) So you may not fast, but I want to know what, what, what are the links between emotions? And I mean, are you, or maybe you're just a comedian. Maybe it's just funny. What are the links between dietary whatever's
2: and issues and, and, uh, and comedy? Well, as you said, I'm not a dietitian or a scientist, but I have noticed <laughs> in my own life, and I can only really speak to my experiences, that when I get low blood sugar, it, it totally dips my mood. So I'll, I'll be crying about something and just see everything in the negative, And then my mom will give me tacos and I'll forget what I was even <laughs> crying about.
0: I would too. Tacos are a cure-all for so many things. So your mother is from Nicaragua, so, and well, your father
2: is American-born, I guess? He is American-born in Michigan, of all places. And uh, I think I get that whole mood and, and blood sugar thing. I mean, maybe that's all humans, but my dad had it especially bad. <laughs> so so tell us about
0: being a Latina misfit. You're neither if uh, one or the other. Is that what you mean? Or you're both?
2: Both of those things. I think it's really challenging being um, half and half because it's such a fragmented community. You know, even if I was full Latina, there's a chance I'd still be a Latina misfit because I'm not Mexican or I'm not Puerto Rican, depending on where you are in the world. If you were in in the Northeast, it'd be not being Puerto Rican, then you'd be a misfit. In Los Angeles, if you're not Mexican, then you're kind of a misfit. Um, If you don't look the way the person you're talking to or interacting with thinks a Latina should look, then they act like you're not one of them, like you haven't shared those experiences. In some communities, it's been more welcoming, like the comedy community has been fantastic, but I think that's full of fantastic people, and we mostly identify with being comedians. But when I was growing up and in school, it was very much like, oh, well, you're light-skinned, so you're probably rich. You probably haven't experienced anything we've experienced which I wasn't rich growing up. I was kind of just regular middle class suburban, which you know a, a, a shrinking population, especially in the U.S. And so I, I didn't fit in with that crowd. And something they say about Los Angeles is that it's such a diverse city, but there's such thing almost as being too diverse. So there are so many subgroups in in Los Angeles that then you can't find a place you you fit into and belong because everybody's fragmented in all these little pieces and so that's what i mean by by being a latina misfit you know i didn't fit in with the other latinos but then i also didn't fit in with the white kids because i do have experiences in my family growing up in a Spanish speaking household and the way i related to my white family and didn't quite feel welcome i can't really talk about that to my white friends they won't get it so there's kind of no place to fit in um until, of course, I found stand-up comedy. And that really was where I found my, my family outside of my family.
1: Why do you love it so much? What is it about stand-up? Or what is it about making people laugh? What is it about stand-up that you love so much? It's
2: the connection. I think there's something very powerful about storytelling. Um, and particularly humor that uh, taps into something universal in all of us. When I was first starting comedy, I had a mentor, Paul Clay. He used to write for a show called Designing Women. He's a retired writer, and he lived in Santa Barbara, which is where I started stand-up. And he was there the first night I ever did it. And he said, I want to teach you how to write. My daughter's off in college, and I I need to fill my empty nest. (laughs) So he'd invite me to lunch, and we'd work on jokes. And the big thing he taught me was to always write truth. And in 10 years of comedy, that is the truest comedy advice I've ever received. When I have a joke that's not landing, if I go back and ask myself, am I telling the truth? Usually the answer is no. And then when I fix it and I make it more true, it hits. Because comedy is about connecting and resonating and reflecting back universal experiences. So it makes me feel less lonely when I tell my story.
0: Can I just say wow, I'm so impressed I didn't I did not know of Paul Clay, but designing women, if you go back and watch it and I assure you it holds up. That's a that was a real groundbreaking series um, and the you know four strong women and uh, but also hilarious, like really, really, really well written. and I think you know what you're saying probably because it's, they spoke the truth. So I think it was way ahead of its time and maybe behind its time now because there aren't any other shows like that anymore. But anyway, let's talk about, instead of fabulous women, let's talk about bad guys. Um, are, are the villains of history all men? Um,
2: gosh. Most of them. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got a few female cult leaders thrown in there. Definitely. I think one of my first episodes was about a Ugandan cult leader lady who... Um, she, you know, she convinced everybody she was doing real magic and had actual special powers and then set fire to her church with like 2000 people in it. Right. I'd say that's a villain of history. Yeah, that's, that said that qualified. Yeah, <laughs> she belongs. She belongs. There's got to be more women there. I think maybe there's one or two. <laughs> but
0: but no, but it makes sense. I mean, if men if uh, have, you know, dominated culture, both positively, they, you know, they're the ones in power so that they, they're more likely to be the bad guys. And the, they just mattered more throughout history. They got to be in positions where they could be evil. Who's your favorite or your least favorite?
2: Oh, but you know what I mean? Who's the worst or the best? I think the most impactful one uh, that I've ever done and the most impactful episode for me, was actually the one on Fidel Castro. So I had um, a guest, Jose Sardui, he's another comedian, and he's actually Cuban. And uh, hearing his family story was really um, touching because I think a lot of times, especially like in in places like Los Angeles, we're very left-leaning. And there are people who sometimes they'll get a little bit lost in that left-leaningness and forget some of the very real historical facts and experiences of our fellow Cuban Americans, uh, or fellow Americans who are Cuban, I should say. And his family, he came here during the Mariela boat lifts, which was long after the revolution. Because sometimes you hear people go, oh, all the Cuban Americans came during the revolution. They're all just a bunch of rich, rich people. False. Many also came later when things went horribly south in Cuba. So his family's experience is that his father was put into the Cuban military, he didn't want to be, and he was separated from his family and sent to somewhere overseas in Europe. And he was separated from his wife and his young children, and he wanted to be with his family. So he wrote a letter when he came back to Cuba on a, on a break from the military and posted it in the town square saying, "You know, I want to be with my family, and it's not okay that you separate me from my family. He was thrown in prison for two years simply for voicing a complaint. Nowadays, we voice complaints every day. We're on Twitter complaining. We're on threads on everywhere. I mean, if we each had to be held accountable for every complaint we made about the government, we'd all be in prison for life.
1: Well, here on this podcast, we interviewed somebody. You probably wouldn't know her, but... uh you're supposed to have two sides to every story, apparently, except on a podcast, which is really interesting that you can actually just talk to somebody about about their story. So I'm wondering, like, are there jokes about Fidel Castro? Can you tell jokes? <laughs> oh, sure. million. Yeah. <laughs> you got you, you got some? Go ahead, Maureen. I'm off the top of my head. I
0: can't let somebody do with cigars, and I don't know. But
2: <laughs> I mean, the main the one that I do on my album is one about how you know, Cuba's so bad under Fidel Castro, the Cubans left their island paradise on a two-by-four to float to Florida, which is the worst state. I mean, it's... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but they have great cars. Yeah, out of the frying pan. Yeah, and they have like the- great cars from the 1953. Cuba? <laughs> yeah, because they have no new cars. <laughs> they just had to fix the ones from the revolution. Yeah. Uh-
0: No, but I hear you about Florida. It's funny that you mentioned that you say you're in California. You're so left-leaning. I mean, Canadians basically are considered socialists compared to Americans. And it's funny, Wendy, you made didn't Margaret Trudeau, the wife of our prime minister's
1: father, the mother of our prime minister, didn't she have a fling with Fidel Castro? Uh Well, it's rumored. So there's lots of pictures of our current prime minister saying, doesn't he look an awful lot like Fidel? So he must be the real dad. Anyway, you can find whatever you want on the internet, obviously. (laughs) But but Pierre Trudeau, who was the father of the guy who's a prime minister now, was really big on Cuba. Mm
0: -hmm. Very pro-Castro, yeah.
1: Yeah, and Canada is really different about About Cuba, like we can go and travel there. It's like going to Florida, whereas Americans, it's it's like a big deal. So, yeah, I don't know whether we have a socialist history, but we and I don't actually know whether Justin's real father is Fidel. (laughs) But but you know what? These are
0: things to float out there. You know, what harm could we possibly do? Well, look
1: at the pictures, Maureen.
0: I, I also I'm also convinced Ronan Farrow is Frank Sinatra's son because they look exactly alike. But anyway, blue, because, eyes. blue yeah. eyes. Oh, yeah. No, but he doesn't look like Woody Allen. Anyway, we're digressing all over the place here, <laughs> which is actually fun in itself. Uh, so, Kat, so let's talk about getting married at 19. So and as I mentioned in the intro, you are no longer married. So that didn't last very long. Was it a cultural thing or were you just, why did you get married?
2: Because, you know. I was very religious. I got really? super religious as a teenager. My family was going through a bit of a crisis and uh, and my mom turned to religion. Now in, in Nicaragua, most people are Catholic. That's in a lot of Latin America. That's kind of the default religion. And Catholicism wasn't serving her in, enough. Um, so she kind of got Pulled in to a very fundamentalist religion. Well, it was a. It's an offshoot of, of Pentecostal Christianity. It's called the Foursquare Church, but it, it's part of the umbrella of Pentecostalism, which is basically fundamentalism plus magic. They speak in tongues. Some wings of it believe that if you hold snakes and they bite you, you're full of the Holy Spirit. Or some. Crazy nonsense. So that's what my family got pulled into. My dad did not like it. He was very Catholic, but he would not budge. He's one of those like died in the world, Democrat Catholics. So one time I remember he actually pulled me by the ear out of youth group and was like, I don't want my daughter becoming a conservative Republican. <laughs> um, I will always remember that core memory right there. Yeah. But uh, what, you, they really scared the crap out of me when it came to hell and sexuality and, and purity culture. It was very big back then. It's still big throughout the U.S. right now and even throughout the world. And it's a very damaging culture because it, it fills people with fear and shame about regular biological realities that we have as teenagers and throughout our lives, making you feel like any thought you have about anything sexual is is something to be ashamed of and fearful of because it means Satan is, is in your brain and he's talking to you. No, no, you can't have t- Satan talking to you in your brain and you, you better do something about it. And, you know, I was just an, really a normal teenage girl who wanted to have sex. And I had a boyfriend and he also wanted to have sex. And we said, well, that must mean we're in love. So... Let's get married. That way we can have sex and not go to hell. That's clearly the solution. We ran off and got married. And without regard to anything else, we eloped. Not thinking about any of the logistics, not thinking about the finances, not thinking about really anything except for not going to hell. But forever. I
1: mean, forever is important. If I'd had to sleep with the first person I slept with, well, let's just say I I didn't. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but that, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> you didn't sleep with the first person you
1: slept with. That I didn't have to marry the first person that I slept with. I mean, thank oh, okay. goodness. Okay, right. Thank goodness that never happened. God, yeah. <laughs> the women of ill repute. But but your mom is she still conservative? That like when you decided to go into stand up, what what happened? Was it? Wait wait wait. I want to wait 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 before I just want to find out. I want to find out how you, when
0: you realized that this was a huge mistake.
2: Oh, oh, early on, <laughs> early on. Cause he at least had like a little bit of a job when we first got married, just at the grocery store. And once we got married and moved in together, he quit and he said, oh, I'm going to work on my music for my band. Uh, you, you figure it out. And so I took on three jobs, was going to school full time, was taking on student loans just to keep everything together. And I don't know how I stayed in it for two years because he quit pretty much right away as soon as we got together. Stuck it out for two years. Yeah, because the Bible said, don't get divorced. So I was like, well, I can't do yeah. that. I just need to wait for it to get better. And it never got better. And at one point I just broke. I My biology saved me because I met somebody who made me tingle from head to toe. And I was like, oh God, this is what it's really like to, to feel chemistry with someone and oh shit I did I did this wrong I never felt this way for my husband and I can't possibly live the rest of my life married to someone who I don't feel this way about so yeah at at that point I felt like either either I was going to sin and commit adultery or get a divorce but staying in my situation was not an option so I left
0: have you resolved your spirituality with your sexuality? I have. <laughs> with your sex drive, but like, have you have you're comfortable in? You didn't. You didn't break yourself while you were breaking up your marriage.
2: No, because so I, 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 I did what I felt was the right thing for my own integrity, which is get the divorce rather than cheat. Which it's such a complex thing, so I don't even judge people who have cheated. And then I went through a, like kind of a faith crisis period where I was like dang it, I prayed all the time. How can you still let me have these emotions that led me to feel this way? And then I happened to just meet the right pastor, the right minister. She's Episcopalian and they're very progressive. And um, I'll never forget it. I had a meeting with her and I said, what does it mean to be a woman? Like, how do I be a good woman according to the Bible? And, you know, in the evangelical church, they have like lists, like here's your 10 pointed list, you know, have long hair, cook you know, submit to your husband. And she gave me a stack of books and she said, well, here are a lot of academic writings discussing this topic. There are many ways to look at it. And really you can pick however you wish to look at it because it really depends on the context and interpretation. I didn't even read the books. I was like, all right, so you're saying I'm safe. (laughs) I I later did go back and read them. (laughs) Um, But that was wonderful. And then I read the the works of Nadia Boltzweber. She has a fantastic book called Sexual Reformation, or it's called Shameless. It's about the sexual reformation and also not judging yourself because there are so many different configurations of sexuality and marriage in the Bible that don't fit the here's two a man and a woman and now they're married. They saved them. Like there's a million. There's King Solomon had 700 wives. Okay. So you can't judge anyone.
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny. It's making me think of the the marriage thing again and the digestive issues that Maureen was talking about at the, at the beginning. And and you said that if you fall in love at 19, just remember, it's a sugar high. So that that's what I had. I had a sugar high a, a couple of times. And and then I got married. Uh, I never joined the church. So I'm curious about what happened with the church and your mom and the stand-up. Like, uh, can I ask this now, Maureen?
0: Yeah, yeah I'm done.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so what happened? You know, it's funny how conflict in life and families and relationships, it so often has nothing to do with the thing on the surface. You know, my parents became sort of politically opposite, right? She was evangelical and she became very conservative, and he was still a die in the world Democrat Catholic. So they eventually divorced right around the time where I divorced, oddly enough. Hmm. Um, related? Probably. When they remarried, get this, my father remarried a conservative Republican and moved to Texas. <laughs> oh, get out. And my mother mm. remarried a dyed-in-the-wool Catholic
0: Democrat. But your mother has a type, obviously, because your father was a dyed-in-the-wool yes. Catholic <laughs> Democrat. But your father was married to someone that I would imagine he was vitally opposed
2: to. Yeah because it was never the politics and it was never the religion that was really causing the conflict cuz he he rarely fight they both get along so well with their new partners so do they both come to your shows like what what
1: happens now like cuz you've you've you sort of found yourself in stand up you can say whatever the hell you want in stand up you've been you've been accepted do they accept you do they yeah.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. My dad comes to my shows. He thinks I'm the funniest comedian of all time. He goes, I don't know why you don't have 10 Netflix specials by now. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's very generous, but calm down. <laughs> and my mom goes to them sometimes, but I don't invite her to the hour long ones. Cause there's still some jokes that I don't want her to hear. See, that's, that's probably true
0: of any kind, whether you're stand-up or whether you're a writer, anything that you're producing that comes from your experience, you're, you, uh, we, us, well, you're going to worry about how that's going to come across to the people that were part of your formative years. Um, and most of the people that we've talked about who have uh, on this show and elsewhere just say you got to brazen it out. You just you got to be prepared to offend your mother or crush your friends, uh, uh, you know, memories or it's it's hard. But you got it. You especially say that if it isn't true, it doesn't
2: work. Exactly. I, funny story. I uh, I went on a, a first date a few months ago, and um, I have a joke about body count, you know, like the number of men you've slept with. And it's my favorite <laughs> joke. It's probably my best joke right now. And he said, oh, can I come to your show tonight? I said, okay. And um, oh, he said, well, shit, I can't do that joke tonight then. I'll have to do <laughs> other jokes because I don't want him to have this be his first impression of my stand-up. So the other girl on stage, like the other girl on the lineup, absolutely destroyed. And I was like, well, I can't. I'm competitive. I can't let her be the funniest one on stage. I have to do my funniest joke. So I did it anyway. I did it because I was like, you know what? This is who I am. If he's going to love me, he's going to love me even if he hears this joke because he'll hear it someday. And you know what? It's been three months and uh, he's practically moved in. It's gone fast. (laughs)
1: Oh, that's so nice. It is a taboo though. Like my husband doesn't want to know and he doesn't want me to ask him. And I, I, you know, I, yeah. So it's, there, there are some things that you're never supposed to mention supposedly, but (laughs) you did in front of how many people and he's fine. So yeah, maybe I should be braver, but I don't
0: know. It all comes down to that episode of friends with Monica and what's, what's his name? The, the, he was no, 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 no. Uh, the, uh, oh, the mustache Kat. guy. Yeah. That guy, Tom Selleck. And uh, yeah, Kat knows what I'm talking about. And they did have that conversation and he was a widower, right? I think we were a divorcee. He'd only been with his wife and, even though he's like 30 years older than her. And then he asked her how many men she'd been with. He said, is it over or under 50 or something? (laughs) She said (laughs) over. And he freaked out completely. And it's just that, and even with, I have kids who are in their 20s who are like, you know, I was lived
1: with a guy before that. They don't want to know about it. As
0: far as they're concerned, dad was the only man, (laughs) which I'm now confirming he wasn't.
1: All right, put that. in your But it was under 50, right? You were, you were in your 20s. So let's, let's (laughs) hope it was under 50. You know what? I used to put myself to sleep at night
0: (laughs) counting the men that I had slept with before I met my husband. That was like sheep. They were all jumping over a fence. No, but I'm kidding. And that's the other thing too, Kat. I mean, you can always say it's part of an act. It's not a hundred percent true. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't say the number, but I dance around it. So there's definitely an implication, but the moral of of the joke in the first place is how hard it is to be a woman existing with all this dick being thrown at us every single day of our life from puberty onward. And then we're supposed to always say no and never create, never cave. If they had as much opportunity as we did, their numbers would be in the hundreds. And and so even if our number is high ish, they'll like they'll never know how many we said no to. We could still have yeah. a one percent acceptance rate, which is, you know, like Harvard. You could be Harvard level selective <laughs> and still have a number that men would be upset about. Affirmative action for
1: the kind of people that I like, yes. <laughs> I love that. Be like Harvard. <laughs>
2: Only take 1% of the applicants. <laughs> but even then, you could be like Harvard and people will still say you were slutty. There is no right answer. What yeah. I say in the joke is a gentleman, you want to meet your wife after her hoe phase because she'll have it one day <laughs> and you want it be- before she meets you.
0: <laughs> You've taken a break uh, from, uh, from villains of history. Well, There's no shortage of villains, so we know you'll be back when you're ready to do that. You have just put out your album, Off-White uh, and, uh, you're working the clubs, I would imagine.
2: Yep. All over the place. I'm in Houston this week. Uh, I was just in San Antonio. I'll be in Arizona, New Mexico coming up. All the hot states, all the hot states.
0: In yeah. A- yeah. You want to stay cool. The world is on fire. Um,
2: do you have any aspirations to act? Oh, definitely. That's something I've been, uh, passionate about since I was a kid. I've been acting since I was eight. So do you go to
0: auditions and stuff? Are you looking to play the best friend or the wacky neighbor or?
2: Oh, absolutely. I'd love a great fun character. You know, I, I love, Her uh, name's Catherine. Oh my gosh. She plays the, the bad witch in, uh, in Wanda, WandaVision.
0: Oh, uh, Catherine's uh, Han. Catherine Han. Oh my God. I love yeah. her. Oh, she's love brilliant. Her. She's brilliant.
2: Oh my gosh, she's kind of like my acting, uh, my hero. That I feel like that would be my zone—just character stuff, just like wild, wacky characters. Be that would be my zone, I think, of, of, for acting. You've talked
1: about there's a difference between dumb funny and smart funny. Like, what's the difference? Because you do like the dick jokes are obviously very popular among guys with or people with dicks. Um, (laughs) But uh, (laughs) uh, a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and there does seem to I don't know, there was a certain period where it seemed that every comedian that I like was was doing like bum fucking jokes um so you probably don't do those uh jokes because you're not two guys but
2: but but what is the difference between dumb funny and smart funny i think dumb funny is low-hanging fruit it's stuff that everybody can write and you can write a lot of it because it's just about you know Your bathing suit parts, um, going to the bathroom, farting, fucking, all those things. Apologies if I'm not supposed to say the F word.
1: Oh, no, no, it's fine. (laughs) No, I think I just said it. I think I just said it with the two guys, so it's okay.
2: (laughs) It's so easy. And and I know so many early comedians. They're usually in their first five years who have some very funny stuff, but it's only there because it's so easy to write Uh, smart comedy takes time and expertise you not only have to learn how joke structure works but you have to really hone in on the the truth of it the truth is that much more important when it's a smart joke because now people are thinking about it like people go into a different place in their brain when you're doing smarter jokes and they're thinking it through. Oh, wait is this political uh-huh, uh-huh, i'm following i'm fo- oh i'm not following huh it- they have to process it. So there's even an element of the timing that is different on smarter jokes. Um, I have to explain things. I have to dumb them down a little bit for people. Uh, but I think ultimately, even though there are a lot more work to write and polish, they take a lot more time, they are more worthwhile because when then I write an album, it's an album that says something instead of having it be an album or a special where I'm just doing Your word vomit of a bunch of random thoughts about my butt or someone else's butt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or someone else's butt. (laughs) But you still do butt jokes when required.
2: Absolutely. Sometimes you need to, (laughs) to break up the the smart or the darker comedy with something a little bit lighter. I, I, I play with it. I, I balance it out.
1: So now you're doing, you've got this, uh, this show off white. So is, is that what you're, what you tour with? No, it's the album. The album is off white, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Do you do that one in stand up? Or what do you do in stand up? I'm still doing parts of it in stand up. I'd say probably about half that, half new material. I'm working towards wanting to do a uh, half hour special sometime in the next year or so. I would like it to focus more on like, more in depth on religion and marriage and you know, it's it's hard sometimes though. with with how society has changed, say, and womanhood, but really the experience of of how we perform womanhood in the context of marriage and relationships and kind of going from the fundamentalist view of that role to something more progressive and how the fundamentalist view seemed to promise me happiness, but I'm far happier now um, in my current relationship and even the most recent more long-term relationships I've had with more progressive men who support me in being a passionate, loud, bold woman rather than trying to make me small. Until he finds out how many people
1: you actually slept with.
2: In which case they'll <laughs> celebrate it because they'll be like, dang, no wonder you're a tiger in the sack. Or, <laughs> or she finds out, <laughs> whatever. I don't want to
1: draw any conclusions. but uh, ten thousand yeah. hours. <laughs> Cat Alvarado. Uh,
0: all right, so the album's called Off-White. So that's how people can hear you. Uh, if uh, and if you're in the Texas area, you can go and see Cat in the next few weeks. And then let's keep our fingers crossed for that Netflix special because that would be that would be great for everybody involved—you, us, your fans—and uh, and a role like Catherine Hans in some really cool show like Wandavision would be would be the icing on the cake. So we wish all that. Putting it in first. Thank you yeah. so. You're a really interesting woman. Thank you for taking some time talking to us. Thank
1: you for having me on. You guys are so funny. Thank you, Cat. So interesting, Mo. I just the whole thing about starting off one way and and trying to reform and or or trying to fit in basically with the, raised in the church and feeling like she had to be married and and the parents being so strict and and now she's gone completely the other direction and and is so happy. That's so nice. Despite my, you know, the thousands of men I've slept with. <laughs> I I knew it was thousands. (laughs) I knew, I knew it. It's (laughs) those
0: sheep. Yeah. You know, (laughs) why sleep with a thousand people? Why not sleep with one and do it well? But anyway, the story I'm thinking of is, so I was, went to a convent school all throughout uh, uh, elementary and secondary school and then had a few wild years. And then John and I moved in together and decided to get married. My mother really wanted us to be married by, in the Catholic church. So we went to see her priest, her parish priest And we sat down and he interviewed us and then, you know, about why we want to get married. And then he asked John his address. Then he asked me my address. And I said, it was the same as John's address. And he said, (laughs) you were fornicators. Get out of my office. You're going to burn in hell. Oh, boy. And oh, no, but I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. He actually said, I want you to live apart and then come back and see me. And then we'll talk about whether I'll marry you or not. Right. Wow. Um. Needless to say, we got married in the Anglican church where they were more than happy. But I, I what Kat was telling me was that I, at one point, said to John, am I going to burn in hell? Hmm. Like, there's something fundamental about being raised a certain way. It's very, even though you intellectually say these ideas don't make any sense and they certainly don't apply to me, there's always, for anyone who's been through that, that niggling doubt that maybe I am, a, I am sinning and I'm going to end up in hell.
1: Well, I think that's most people. I was raised very differently than most people in the sense that I I wasn't baptized. I wasn't raised in any religion. (gasps) And and yet I I know I I went to school and we said the Lord's Prayer and everybody around me, they all believed in God and everybody believed in God. And I wasn't raised that way. But there was always until, I don't know, 30 years ago, I was always afraid, oh, is there a lightning bolt? what what if there is a lightning bolt yeah. and can i actually say that and now i just you know i kind of say whatever i want uh which is not always uh, welcome but <laughs> um but there's no lightning bolts but there's no that's okay bolt.
0: there's no lightning and if there is if we do
1: go to hell we're going to be in such great will company you come? and the thousands
0: <laughs> well i will be there and so will you but probably not cat alvarado because center. she is basically oh, a center. good person <laughs> <laughs> She's a good person and she's smart and she's funny and all those things.
1: And so are you. So are you. Come on. Thousands cheap.
0: <laughs> Whatever. There we go. So <laughs> oh, stop it.
1: <laughs> Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen
2: Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company. And producer Yet Belgraver. <laughs>